Hi, everyone. I'm Kelly O'Horo, and this is Adaptable Behavior Explained. Welcome to our show today. I'm excited to have you here and to introduce a new series called Counselor Cafe, where I have chosen to interview other therapists so that we can talk about important concepts and things that are plaguing people in the world today. And I'm really excited, especially to have Jamie Castillo here, who is the owner of Finder Shine Therapy in Tempe, Arizona, and also author of this awesome book, What Happened to Make You Anxious, which we will be talking about in greater detail on our show today. So um, therapists become therapists because we're interested in our craft and we're interested in how humans work. And I don't think I've met a single counselor who hasn't had stuff in their history that they're more eager to explore. So part of what makes us more uh, aware and awake about helping others is really knowing and being aware about what's going on with us and what motivated us to become a therapist. So on that, I'm going to kick Jamie off here. Tell me a little bit about yourself, maybe on that note, you know, a little bit something gritty about anxiety, perhaps, since you are an expert. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to have this conversation. It's so important. Um, And in terms of my journey, you know, like you mentioned, as therapists, we are really encouraged to do our own work in the journey to become a therapist so that we can show up for our clients better. And so in my journey, I started unpacking some of my own anxiety and uh, really realized that there's a lot in my history that uh, contributed to how I felt as a, a budding therapist. And in particular, I experienced a lot of fear around being incompetent, sounding dumb. Um, and, you know, when I really unpacked that in therapy, I realized this actually comes from somewhere, even though I didn't have a, a blaringly obvious trauma that that caused it um and so that's sort of what what prompted me to to do my own work and to start um writing this book awesome well that that's really interesting and I thank you for your vulnerability about that I I always tell my therapists as I'm teaching and and we're doing consultation and staffing if there's something that's in their way you know, typically it's our countertransference and a funny phrase around our office is your shit is showing, you know, we better get your shit cleaned up so that it's out of your way because otherwise you are in the way of your client. So I I have even more respect hearing about that. And I think it's a great, uh, screening question when you're looking for a therapist of your own, asking them, you know, do you do your own work and are you actively seeking those additional help? Because that's what keeps us sharp. It's what keeps us aware. So thank you for sharing about that. I really appreciate that vulnerability. Um, So tell me, you said that's what made you start to write the book. Tell us a little bit about the book, what we can expect to find in it, as well as for you, the purpose for the reader. Absolutely. So I learned early on that it was an impediment to call myself a trauma therapist and to be marketing myself to people who'd experienced trauma because there are there are certain types of trauma that everybody identifies as traumatic, right? And we talk about those, sometimes they're referred to as big T traumas, where people will say, if I've been through something like abuse or assault or... Um, Car accidents. Car ac- yes, these, these big things. Shootings, that, abuse, yes. et cetera, that everyone doesn't deny. Right. Everyone would look at that and say, that is traumatic. Those people would likely seek out trauma therapy, right? And so for, for many of us, though, 
it's it's more about little underlying things that did happen or didn't happen that don't necessarily rise to the level of a big T traumatic event, but that still impact us today. And so for me, doing my own work meant exploring what those little T traumas were and and honoring them and being able to say, no, that doesn't rise to the level of a, a life-threatening experience, but it certainly impacted me and still impacts me. And I have an obligation as a therapist and as a mom and as a partner and as all of these things to look at that and to explore that um, and, and to unpack it. That's so, so true and really poignant. I appreciate that so much. So thinking about trauma and symptoms of trauma, you know, I understand anxiety as a symptom of trauma. I mean, it's something that's unresolved that we haven't yet identified its originating origin of its of its roots and what happened, like you talk about in the book, on how to sort of find our way to those moments that created the anxiety in our nervous systems. So let's talk about anxiety. What, how would most people understand anxiety as a symptom? And what are some things that are obvious that we all know about anxiety that people can really point to, but, you know, which will help us to better talk about things that most people don't understand as anxiety symptoms. Certainly. So for me, if somebody had asked me, are you an anxious person? I would have said, who, me? No, absolutely not. I'm fine, right? And for me, it was, I I first noticed it when I was sitting in uh, my internship for graduate school. And we, I was at an internship site where I was providing therapy as an intern, and I was surrounded by people much more experienced than me, so therapists who'd been doing it a lot longer. And every time, it was sort of a roundtable staffing, right? So we'd go around, and it was one person's turn to talk or to staff a case. And I noticed that as it would get closer to me, my anxiety would just rise and rise and rise. And and that looked like typical symptoms, right? So my heart might beat a little bit faster. My palms might get sweaty. I might just feel sort of keyed up. And and those were classic signs of anxiety. Um, and, and when I unpacked that, I, I really found out that there was something deeper in my history that had happened that created this overwhelming kind of ridiculous fear of speaking in front of other people and sounding incompetent. And so those were the symptoms that that sort of keyed me off to knowing, okay, there's something here going on. It doesn't seem like other people are experiencing this amount of anxiety in this room. But I think for a lot of people, you know, those classic symptoms can show up, but also more inconspicuous symptoms like so before before we dig into that I want to just kind of pull back a little bit because I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about the fact that anxiety is not a bad thing Mm -hmm. it gives us the energy we need to motivate us to avoid failure to finish things to not want to uh be incomplete with something to get that last assignment done to try to do a good job so a lot of times people paint anxiety as if it's always bad all the time. And stress is really actually really important in small doses, not acute and all the time and pulled back. And I know, I know that you know that, but I want to make sure that our viewers know that because we need anxiety to motivate us. And I don't, I I don't know about you, but I don't know a person with a master's degree or higher that wouldn't probably meet criteria for generalized anxiety because it helps to motivate success. And so 
we're talking today more about those symptoms that are so not ecological, like you just shared, where you're getting ready to present and you're overwhelmed with this fear of sounding like you don't belong there and you're not going to be competent if you say something or it's not going to be correct. And that's the stuff that throws us into that freeze state. And ultimately that noisy voice in our head that says, you're not enough. You're not smart enough, strong enough, competent enough. And that's where we can really dig in. And so, so from there, uh, let's talk about those more innocuous symptoms. Those ones that not everybody would understand as anxiety that perhaps could point them to further exploring those roots. Does that sound okay with you? Definitely. Yeah, you make a good point about anxiety that fits the facts of the situation. So if I have a presentation coming up and I feel a little anxious about it, that's going to prompt me to prepare. And that's helpful. And when I'm sitting in a meeting with my colleagues and it feels like there's a lion about to attack me in terms of what's going on in my body, (laughs) that's disproportionate. And that doesn't fit the facts. And that's worthy of intervention. So... Yes, the more inconspicuous symptoms of anxiety, in my mind, can a lot of times it comes across as irritability, right? When people tend to have a short fuse or I feel like I I just don't have capacity, I don't have tolerance for much at all, and I I come across really irritable, um, that's an indicator to me that there's some anxiety going on. Because when I'm worried about things related to to survival and livelihood, it's really hard to, to have capacity for anything else. Those are really fundamental things that my brain they is trying slow to work us down. They impede our thought. They impede our action. And it shows up as a reaction as opposed to a response that's measured in real time ecological safety. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that that is a great, you know, segue into, I, I kind of want to share a client story so that as people are listening, they, They understand that we are all impacted by triggers in our environment, and some of them are so not obvious as far as how they are rooted in our history and in our past and how they have informed our presenting issues today. So I I had this client, awesome woman, high achiever, very successful, strong marriage, beautiful home, you know, just all the things. And when we first started talking, you know, I said, let's dig into your history and she's like, oh, my childhood, my childhood was, per- honestly, it was perfect. It's almost embarrassing. And we get to talking and, she, you know, they went to church and there was always food on the table and her parents showed up to everything and she was the valedictorian. I mean, just all the things that would make someone go, nothing's wrong with them. Why would they be complaining about anything? And what she understood in herself was, you know, more irritability than she wanted, uh, impatience, some symptoms that that look like ADHD and probably are... ADHD as well as anxiety, but ultimately they're things that were bugging her about herself. And they weren't these global sweeping problems that were infringing on her ability to be an awesome, productive person. But she, she didn't have patience for a lot of compassion. She didn't have patience for a lot of, you know, people needing her and things like that. And so we dig and we dig and we spend some time figuring out what, what happened, you know, what happened that created this impatience in your nervous system. And, you know, eventually we discover that she's a baby. And when she's a baby, her grandfather passes away. And her mom checks out. Not because her mom's a bad mom, but because her mom is dealing with an extraordinary grief experience. 
And the baby feels that. You know, in my own story, my mom had a miscarriage when I was like two, and she checked out. So even just an experience that happens to our mothers creates this instability of support where we don't understand where they went. Why aren't they there for us? And so we learn things like, I can't count on anyone, or I have to make sure everybody's okay, or I need to double check and and fix all the problems because if people have a problem, they leave me. And it's so interesting, these adaptations that are really anxiety driven, but are super socially supported. Oh, she's so helpful. She's such a good little girl. She helps her siblings so much. She gets straight A's. She's never got a problem in class. You know, so these are the kinds of things where it's, they're not bad adaptations, but they can be a problem when they are done too much or they're motivated by this sense of angst and, and something's going to go wrong if I don't, or I'm not going to be seen as a good enough person if I don't. So can you think of some other examples that would match those underlying kind of more of a small T experience, which really turn into a, an extraordinary presenting issue that is so long lasting? For sure. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it's so common, right? And I think people really discount their experiences and say, well, I don't need therapy. I, my childhood was great. And that was a similar story for mm-hmm. me, too. I had a good childhood. There were some adverse experiences in there, but nothing that I said, oh, I definitely need therapy for this. I was traumatized by this. But for me, it was being the youngest in a really high-achieving family and uh, having two older brothers that were maybe not technically genius level, but, but I, I saw them as geniuses. They were so smart. And I have memories of sitting around at the dinner table and my parents talking about things and my brothers chiming in and talking about things that were way too sophisticated for me to understand at that age. And so I would check out and they would all be having these robust conversations about politics big fancy words that are out of your vocabulary because they're not appropriate for your age yes exactly and so I sort of internalized I I can't keep up with this conversation I'm not smart enough I'm not capable I'm just gonna zone out and And there it is play with my food right exactly and so had you asked me is that a trauma memory I would have left (laughs) as most of us would like the dinner table was fine it's fine right it was fine I was just the youngest um, but it's, it's about what we internalize, what we take. And so in those examples, yes, if I'm perfect, if I do everything the right way, maybe I'll get the attention or the praise that I need that I'm not getting because my mom's checked out. That makes so much sense. So do you have any sections that you can share with us from your book that are just kind of show-stoppy so that a person purchasing it can tell us what they or this section could tell us what they can expect when they read your book. So the book, the premise of the book is that anxiety is a helpful messenger. The more we try to outrun it, the, the more we try to extinguish it and get it to, to go away, the louder it becomes. And sort of a metaphor for that would be if you're in a burning building, but you don't realize it's burning and somebody's shouting to you saying, hey, you're in a burning building, and we don't hear them and we carry on because we, we're not listening to them, that person is not just going to say, well, okay, and walk away and go the other direction. That person is going to say, hey, you're in a burning building. They're going to get louder. They're going to get more pronounced. They're going to get more creative with how they try to convey this message to you because there's real danger. 
And anxiety does the same thing. When we ignore it, when we extinguish it, when we suppress it, it says, I'm going to get creative and I'm going to get louder and I'm going to cause more symptoms because there's a threat here. Right. Problem is, oftentimes it's interpreting threats that aren't actually real threats. So when I'm sitting in my meeting... It's the perception of threat based on those things that we talked about in history. Right. So when I'm in the meeting with my colleagues, it's not threatening. They're very supportive. I can say something and it will be well-received. And if I say something dumb, it won't matter. It's a very compassionate environment. But it was like my anxiety was saying, danger, 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 danger. If you say say something dumb, you won't be accepted. You won't fit in. You won't be a good therapist one day. All of these things that were very important to me. And so I had to learn to, rather than suppress it, outrun it, say that's stupid, that doesn't make sense, stupid anxiety, go away. I had to say, this has information for me. And it's pointing me to, hey, this experience in your past was big. It was meaningful. And we can't let it happen again because it felt really bad. And so as soon as I tuned into it and said, hey, anxiety, okay, what do you have for me? Hey, messenger, what data are you trying to red flag and dashboard me so that I don't ignore it. Exactly. And I can work with it. Lean in. So the premise of the book is designed to help you, A, start to befriend your anxiety. Start to say, rather than running away from you, I'm going to turn toward you and I'm going to listen. And I'm going to see what information you have for me. Which is, that can take a long time. That's a hard thing to do because anxiety sucks. It's uncomfortable. We don't want to, but we want to be thinking about it. Like it's our friend, like it's a messenger. And so part of, I think the work and and what you so beautifully describe in your book is let's lean in and get close to it and befriend it so that we understand what are you trying to tell me? Like, like someone who's got our back as opposed to, you know, the part of us that's sabotaging our world. It's like, if I slow down and listen in, I've got good information I can lean into and and explore greater my whole self and my whole story. Exactly. So, and then we let anxiety guide us to the little T traumas, the the things in the past that you wouldn't readily identify as big traumatic incidences, but the place where anxiety was born as a way to help you avoid some distressing or, or threatening situation in the future. And then we get to look at that and dig around in that and help resolve that so that anxiety doesn't have to work so hard. It doesn't have to be the person in the outside of the burning building screaming. It can say, it's safe to move forward. I can rest. I can I can ease up a little. And then the presentation, the benefit of that is that we get to live with less anxiety. Right. Which is everyone's goal. We lean in and then it can lessen. Yeah. Is there anything you want to share directly from from your lovely words that drives that home? Well, uh, I do have one section where I talk about how do you know if you need to revisit a memory or not? So sometimes people, clients will come in and they'll say, well, yeah, this happened, but I just don't really know if I need to go back there. And so I talk a little bit about uh, the disconnect between knowing something to be true and something feeling really true. And you've talked about this a lot and you're an expert in this area, but The disconnect of, you know, I know something wasn't my fault, but I just feel guilt and shame about it as if it were my fault. Or I know that I'm competent. I know that I'm capable, but I just feel so... imposter. Yes. Yes, the imposter syndrome, the sphere of failure. And so the book in that section helps you identify ways in which you know something to be true about yourself, others, or the world, 
but it doesn't feel true. And that's a good indicator that there's work to be done there. And the good news is there's work that's effective to help people uncover, unpack, and get to the roots of their issues and fully resolve them, resolve them for once and for all. You know, I talk in other episodes about EMDR therapy, which is such a robust, beautiful therapy that really does address the roots of stored maladaptively encoded memories that are plaguing us today. And so, you know, as EMDR therapists, we know that it works to effectively change the way we relate with our presenting symptoms, namely anxiety in this this show. And I love that a person can read this book and really do a lot of pre-work yes. to get to, and, and in conjunction with their work, to go see, you know, a bottom-up therapist like EMDR or somatic experiencing or any other mindfulness-based approach that addresses the somatically stored and cellularly stored information that we have, that we all have, that could potentially be you know, causing us problems today. So I'm so grateful that you wrote this book and that you put the time and love and authenticity into it because it's such an awesome book. I highly recommend you pick up this book if anxiety bothers you or someone that you know or love. It would be just a great, uh, thoughtful thing to share. Uh, You can get it on Amazon and we'll put that link in the uh, section below and the comments below. But I just really appreciate you coming today, and I thank you for being here. And uh, really get this book if you have a book uh, list that you're looking to grab. And I just want to thank all of you for tuning in to our episode today. And don't forget to lead with love. It'll never steer you wrong. 